chapter 85. Psalms 85. Or Psalm 85. No, there's no S. <laughs> the 85th chapter of the book of Psalms. There we go. And this morning, I'm just going to dive into the text, if that's okay. So if you, if you want to read along in your Bible, you are welcome to. If you want to read along with the slide, that's why it's there. If you want to read along in your bulletin, it's in there as well. But we begin in verse 1. It says, O Yahweh, you showed favor to your land. You returned the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your fury. You turned back from your burning anger. Turn us back, O God of our salvation, and cause your vexation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger from generation to generation? Will you not yourself return to revive us that your people may be glad in you? Show us, O Yahweh, your loving kindness and give us your salvation. Let me hear what the God, Yahweh, will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his holy ones, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs up from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. Indeed, Yahweh will give what is good, and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will establish the way of his steps. When we read this text this morning, church, the one point, the one theme is that of revival. And many people, in fact, there's no shortage of quotes you can find on the topic of revival. Many people have opinions about what revival looks like, what it's supposed to be, but Scripture has the final say, doesn't it? And so what we really see within this text is this simple fact, if you want to write this down, Christ faithfully brings revival when the church seeks Christ faithfully. That's really the bottom line of this passage. Christ faithfully brings revival when the church seeks Christ faithfully. Revival is not just some event. It's not just something we, we flippantly turn on or turn off. A revival is actually, it's, it's a life in constant pursuit of Jesus Christ. I was preparing this message and uh, well, actually, about a month ago, I was, I was looking ahead to the sermons in this series and the Psalms I wanted to cover, and this was one I really have been wanting to focus on for some time. And one morning, as I was doing my daily devotional, sometimes I like to have some background noise. It actually helps me focus. And I'll turn on a YouTube video, or I'll play music. And, and this particular day, I turned on YouTube, and there on my channel was H.B. Charles Jr. If you don't know who he is, that's okay. He's a famous preacher. He's somebody, I've read some of his books. I really, if you get a chance to hear his sermon on Psalm 85, I promise it's probably better than mine. And that was intimidating because when he preached it, I sat there and I just wept at my desk. Hit me really hard in the heart. And I thought, well, now I can't preach on Psalm 85 <laughs> because how do you follow that? Even though nobody here has probably watched it, it's still in my mind. And so as I was preparing, I purposely stayed away from that sermon 
from his preaching because even though it's better than mine, it's, it's not for this church. I had a friend of mine say, well, if you liked it so much, why don't you just, you know, take chunks of it and give him credit and don't necessarily plagiarize him, but, you know, give credit to your source. You can do that. I said, yeah, I, I guess I could, but H.B. Charles Jr., as good of a preacher as he is, does not pastor in Lisbon, North Dakota. He doesn't pastor Faith Assembly of God. I've never met him. I, I love him as a brother in Christ, and we're both pastors, and we're both reading from the same book, drinking from the same well, you might say, but we are planting and we are watering and harvesting in completely different fields. I'm in a small town in North Dakota. He's down in Florida where it's really warm today. It's not to say there wouldn't be something to get from his preaching. Again, if you have time, I'd encourage it, but there are many people who have spoken on the topic of revival over the years. Again, I will tell you, there are no shortage of quotes and quips about the topic. But my hope and my prayer this week as I was preparing this sermon is that the congregation of Faith Assembly of God will see from the text what I believe the Holy Spirit was giving their pastor and that I give to you. What I was able to see in the text, what I was able to see in my research, what it, what was the burden of my heart as I prepared this sermon? And I typed every letter of the manuscript, not because I'm inspired, but because the Word is, and I'm trying to bring you the Word of God this morning. And simply, if we were to summarize this Word, this chapter, it is that Christ is faithful to revive His church when His church is faithful to seek Him. Well, the first thing we really see in the text when we, when we really begin to break it down is simply the first point this morning, revival remembers God's goodness. We look again at verses 1 through 3. Oh, Yahweh, you showed favor to your land. You returned the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all, their, all your fury. You turned back from your burning anger. We have to recognize right out of the gate, revival begins with God. It doesn't begin with me. It doesn't begin with you. It begins with Him. Notice the wording of verses 1 through 3. You showed. You returned. You forgave. You covered. You withdrew. You Turned. All of these things are past tense verbs. The goodness of God, the things he has done, the things that we read about in his word. Every single verb, every single thing is something he has done. Not something we did. Not something I did. God and God alone brings revival. The psalmist remembers God's goodness, that he was favorable to his land. And it's his land. We can't forget that. We'll say, this is my town. This is my church. No, it's not. It's his. We can say we're stewards of it, but ultimately the buck stops with him. God makes this very clear when he appears to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7. He says, if you turn away and you forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I've set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land which I have given you. 
When God restores the fortunes here in our psalm, that, that word fortunes, and, and Jeremiah mentions this very thing would happen when the people returned from their exile. Amos 9.14 also points to this. Now later, later in this psalm, we have to be clear, later in Psalm uh, 85.9 and 12, we're going to see this, that the psalmist will refer to it as our land, but we have to understand it began as God's property. It's only theirs because they are to be stewards of it. You understand, I, I have no real authority in the church, but what the Lord has given the office of pastor. That's it. I'm just a steward of the position that he's blessed me with and, and hopefully blessed this church with. The board, is, are, they're only stewards. They don't run the church. The pastor doesn't run the church either. The congregation doesn't run the church. These are things we are stewards of in our positions within the body of Christ. Paul makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians. But when we read this and we see that God is restoring the fortunes and the people are being revived and things are coming back, this is why people, when they write about this psalm, they, even though we can't prove it, they believe it was written at the return from exile because the psalmist is, is speaking about the fulfillment of prophecy that would only take place when the exile was over. When God forgave his people and they were blessed. You remember last week, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That was how our psalm began last week. God had withdrawn his fury, his, his burning hot anger, just as he's done to Nineveh whenever Jonah goes and, and wails, if you'll pardon the pun. Nobody got that. That's okay. It's still early. Jonah's wailing. Get it. Okay. Are you awake this morning? Okay, all right, we're good. I'm going to step on some toes when I say this this morning, but I include myself in this statement, so relax a little, please. But there is not a single person on planet Earth who is an expert on revival. There's not one single person in this church, and in this town, in this state, in this nation, and not on this planet who's an expert in revival. Because if we were, we would bring it. Only God does that. Therefore, he's the only one we can really say he's the expert on it. Now, there are things we do know about revival. We know revival comes through prayer. Revival comes through the word of God. We see that in our opening part of our text this morning. But all the other factors that bring revival, that depends on him. In fact, revival hardly ever looks the way we want it to look. It hardly ever happens how we think it should be. It's vastly different almost every time. In fact, the word revival itself indicates some pretty big truths to us. For something to be revived, what does that mean? Something had to be dead or dying, right? And it needs revived. Revival is not a series of church services that take place Sunday night to Wednesday Revival is not a, a church service in a tent with a huge altar call. Revival is not a bunch of people acting foolish and calling it the Holy Spirit. Revival is when the power of God restores that which was dead or dying and brings it back to life again. But we have to be cautious of something, church. We have to beware of revivalism. Revivalism is trying to make a revival where there is no move of God. Trying to force a revival at any cost. And church, hear me on this, please. 
please, if you get nothing, if you don't even want to listen the rest of the message, you need to hear this. Revival at any cost will cost us and has cost us revival. Revival must begin with God. And when the people are seeking him and when they are knowing him and when the people are in prayer to him and when they're in his word and when they're in worship of him, revival inevitably comes. Look at the first three verses again. What's the psalmist doing here? He's summarizing the acts of God from the word of God. Every single thing the psalmist writes about is recorded in scripture. God, you are favorable to your land. That word favor, raseta in Hebrew. It means that God took pleasure in it. He, He found a high degree of satisfaction in the land, as did its people. He returned the fortunes. That word returned is familiar to us. It's the Hebrew word shuv. It means he turned it back. He brought it back to its rightful position. It's the same word used for repentance. And it's going to pop up five times in the 13 verses of Psalm 85. But notice, what does he return? Fortunes. The NASB translates that word fortunes as captivity. It's the Hebrew word shavut. And it means fortunes that were captured in battle. Think about that for just a moment. What's the psalmist really saying here? He's saying, you gave us back what we fought for. Sometimes in churches, we we forget what it is we fought for, don't we? We forget what matters. We lose sight of what we're working towards. We become complacent. In church, when we become complacent, we become average. And when we become average, we stop reaching for what's better. And from being complacent to being average, we quickly become victims. Church, I'm guilty of this myself. Well, we tried that outreach and and nobody got saved, so we probably should can it. We did all this stuff in the community and nobody came to service. So maybe, maybe we should just forget some of those things and throw it out, never waste money on it again. Or how about this one? I, I tried to talk to my coworker about Jesus, but he wasn't going to hear any of it. So I gave up. I'll just be nice and kind. And, and when he's ready, I'll try again. I don't want to rock the boat, so I'll just say nothing. How many of us are guilty of that? You see, when we can't win, we begin to make excuses. And as we make excuses, revival slips through our fingers because we forgot why we did it to begin with. Church, I want to tell you this right now. Excuses are the nails used to build a church of failure. These past few months, I've been so guilty of this myself. I've been looking at over our, our outreaches and our efforts in the community, and I gotta be very, I'm going to be very real and very raw with you this morning. It's depressing. It really is. It's discouraging. I wanted to put all of our ministries on the chopping block. In fact, I actually sat down with someone and, and said, that's exactly what we're doing. And some of them rightly should go there, and some will. Then someone said, you know, brother, you're forgetting it takes time. If it was as easy as doing just one or two things in the community to grow a church, every church in the community ought to be bursting at the seams, flooded with people. It takes time and it takes the preaching and the the teaching of the truth. 
Because truth and time will always win. Church, we have to remember what it is we fought for and pray that God restore that. And the best way to remember that is to remember those moments when you first came to Christ. That desire that you had to grow when you received his forgiveness, when you first repented, when you first come to know the joy of the Lord. When he first forgave your iniquity, when he got rid of your guilt and your shame and and he covered their sin, but he cleansed us of ours. And we need to remember that zeal that we once had and say, Lord, I know what you've done. Now notice something this morning. Notice the psalmist doesn't go and say, now do all that stuff again. Doesn't say that, does he? No. But he does say, restore us and revive us. He doesn't need to save us again. We're saved. We just need to be reminded of what that looks like and live in that truth. We need him to bring us back to where it is we're supposed to be. But here's the hard part. This is what makes it difficult. This is, why re- this is where revival starts to, to fade for some people. Verse 3, you withdrew your fury. Some translations say wrath. You turn from your burning or your your hot anger. We don't like verses like that. Not that we have a problem with God being angry. We want God to be angry with the leftists, don't we? We want God to be angry with the communists. We want God to be angry at Canada. But if he gets angry with me, what did I do wrong? What's What's so bad about me? He might be angry with my sin, with my rebellion, with my gossip or greed or gluttony or whatever the case may be. You understand Israel's captivity was caused by Israel's own unfaithfulness. For God to truly restore them, he had to forgive them. And for them to truly be forgiven, they had to acknowledge what they'd done, that they'd done wrong things. And if we're praying for revival, and if we're seeking revival, if we want God to bring revival, then the church has to be self-aware enough to say, God, where did I go wrong? Where did I mess up? What did I do to get off track? And ultimately, church, we have to remember whatever sins we are guilty of, well, that wrath that we deserve was poured out upon the Son of God on the cross. And it's there we have to leave it. It was on that day Isaiah prophesied, he said that we'd be able to say, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for although you are angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Church, if we truly want revival, we have to turn from our sin and turn to the cross and start walking forwards. Because as we seek Christ faithfully, he's faithful to bring true revival. The second thing we see is revival recognizes God's grace. Read again in verses 4 through 7. Turn us back, O God of our salvation, and cause your vexation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger from generation to generation? Will you not turn yourself, or not yourself return to revive us that your people may be glad in you? Show us, O Yahweh, your loving kindness and give us your salvation. Turn us back. The ESV says, revive us again, O Lord. 
It's shuv. Let us repent, God. Put us on the right path. Get us where we need to be, that we can go in the right direction and move forward. Renew us, rebuild us, revive us, turn us back, O God of our salvation. And he does save. He's faithful to save us. Paul says, by grace we've been saved through faith. This is not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. We don't earn it, we don't work for it, he gives it freely. And the God who delivers us, the God who preserves us, the God who saves us by his grace, he's the same God who revives us, who returns us, or we will continue to stray for him every time. This is what... Hosea tells us, Hosea 6, he says, Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has struck us, but he will bandage us. He will make us alive after two days. He'll raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us pursue to know Yahweh. His going forth is established as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the late rain watering the earth. Or look again to what God tells Solomon. He says, my people who are called by my name, if they humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I'll listen from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. This is God's grace towards his people. His patient, loving grace. And God brings that reviving. But the people must bring the repenting. And appeal to that. Excuse me, appeal to that grace. The psalmist is not just saying, Lord, you have to turn us back. You make sure we repent. He's appealing to the grace of God that will do it. Excuse me. And we know, we saw this last week, that without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there can be no confession of sin. And without confession of sin, there can be no conversion. And if there's no converting out of the darkness, there's no reviving in the light. Just turn us back. The ESV says, revive us again. The Hebrew means to turn us back once more. Why once more? Why again? Because we fail. Because we sin. Because we come up short. And we do it time and time again. And we do this because we don't truly understand revival. Lord, bring us back to you and And this time we'll humble ourselves, we'll seek your face, and we'll turn from our sin if you turn us back to you. Turn us back again. It is only the patient, loving grace of a glorious God that does this. Psalmist says, cause your vexation toward us to cease. In other words, don't, Lord, please no longer be offended by our shortcomings or by our rebellion or by our sin, but instead overlook them, forgive them, cover them, cleanse them. Otherwise, the psalmist knows this, otherwise we have no hope. So he asks three times, he says, will you? Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger from generation to generation? Will you not return to revive us? The implied answer is He won't. It's not like the character of God to be angry and stay angry and not return to his people. In Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, he says that he's the God who shows loving kindness to thousands, to those who love him and keep his commandments. 
He says he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Will God be angry with us forever? You know, there are other Psalms who ask that question, but the unspoken answer is always clear, no. No, all we need to do is turn to him and he will return. He will turn to us. He says, will you prolong that word in Hebrew? It means to drag it out or stretch it out. The King James says in that Shakespearean way, wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? And the understood answer is, of course not. I said this a couple of weeks ago. Every curse is broken in the cross of Christ. We need only humble ourselves and turn to him and he shows us his grace. But the hard question, the really hard question, the difficult question, the one we avoid, but the one we have to press in on today is that third question. Will you not return to revive us that your people may be glad in you? And this comes back to what I've said in the previous three sermons. Do you enjoy your walk with Christ? Do you truly find joy in your walk with Christ? Do you have joy in your reading of your Bible? Do you have joy in your prayer life? Do you have joy when you come to church and gather with other believers? Do you have joy in sharing Jesus? And if the answer to any one of those questions is no, you need revival. You need it. And if the answer is yes, then maybe you don't need reviving because you've been vived. You're just not living in revival. Oh no, pastor, you don't understand. You're, you're just, uh, revival, you have to have people flocking to the altars and you have to have the sick being healed and we have to have signs and wonders and all these things. And I would ask you, where is that written? Not in God's word. Chances are, if you believe that, you've been lured into revivalism. You don't know real revival. On the day of Pentecost, next chapter 2, we see people getting saved. We see people filled with the Holy Spirit. And eventually, in the next chapter, we see people getting healed. But nobody in the book of Acts ever calls that revival. Because it's not. It's not a revival. It's an outpouring. And you need to know the difference. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened on the day of Pentecost. The likes of which the world had never seen before or will ever see again. To say we need another Pentecost is to assume that God's power was so impotent on that day it wasn't strong enough to launch his church. That's not to say we don't need another outpouring. An outpouring is a powerful moment. We see them genuinely from time to time. But it is only a moment, relatively speaking, because outpourings often get poured out at some point. It can be a service, it can be a collection of services, it can last a day, it may last a month, it may last years, but if outpourings eventually have to stop. And the people who were changed in those outpourings, the people who were saved, the people who have a testimony, are to go forth from the outpouring and change the world. If an outpouring is real, if it's authentically from the Holy Spirit, we see in 1 John 4, we're told to test the spirits. We don't want to do that. We hear about this great revival. Oh, praise God. And, and we all want to flock and go to an event. That's not, that's not what we're to do. An outpouring will exalt the true Christ. That's what 1 John 4 tells us. 
It'll oppose worldliness. It'll point people to scripture. It will elevate truth. It will produce a true love for God and for others. At least that's what Jonathan Edwards decided when he read it and studied it. And the great awakening happened in the 1700s. And America was a truly Christian nation at that point. That was a real outpouring. Case in point, something we can look at for reference and clarity is in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2. The people were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's pointing to Scripture. To fellowship, love of others, breaking of bread, exalting the true Christ. To prayer, which also exalts Christ. Many, other, many wonders and signs taking place through the apostles, exalting Christ. They had all things in common. That opposes worldliness. They're selling their property to provide for those who had need. That's love of others. Praising God. That's their love for God. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. That's an outpouring. Later, people were healed in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John heal the lame beggar. They get persecuted. We see the apostles getting arrested in Acts 3 through 5. And ultimately, we see Stephen put to death. And speaking of Stephen, in outpourings, ministers are raised up. We see this with Barnabas, Silas, Philip, Stephen. People are called to ministry. But then those who receive the outpouring, they're to go and they're to minister wherever they find themselves. That's Acts 8.4. You want to know how to, how to truly tell if an outpouring is authentic or not? Those who had been scattered went about proclaiming the good news of the word. If an outpouring is really from God, then people go forward and they pour out into other people's lives the truth of the gospel. But that's an outpouring. You see, a revival is when a church is dying, when the people of God are spiritually dead and the preaching is fine for a motivational speech, and the worship sure makes me feel good for the moment. But there's not much of the Word, and the Holy Spirit can't really be found. A revival is when a Christian is strengthened, and when the body gets a second wind, and a new generation takes the reins. And yes, we'll see people saved, and yes, we'll see people healed, but that's only because outpouring follows revival. Look at the greatest revivalist of all time. According to Leonard Ravenhill, this man was the greatest revivalist of all time, John the Baptist. He came preaching, repent and be baptized. He prepared the way for Christ. He woke the people up for revival, that they would know Christ, have a relationship with Christ, follow Christ, and eventually teach Christ, preach Christ, as they were followers of Christ, and they understood Christ, and through Christ they understood the Father and then through Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension came the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That which is alive has no need for revival. But that which is struggling to stay alive has to be revived. Church, if you have no joy or love or peace, if you can't find the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you have no life. If we don't have Christ, we're dead. He said this very same thing in John 15. He said that he's the vine, we're the branches, that those who abide in him and him and them, the person bears much fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, well, he addresses that too. He says, if anyone does not abide in him, that person's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather him and cast them into the fire and they're burned. You know, there's really no reviving some people. They like to be dead. They're comfortable where they're at. They're seeking something else. Maybe they're seeking revivals, but they aren't seeking Christ. 
Maybe they're seeking what the world offers or what religion on its own offers. Maybe they're seeking experiences that will fade or a moment of emotion, but they are not seeking Christ. Because it's only in Christ that he shows us his true steadfast love and grace and grants us our salvation. When we seek Christ, Christ is faithful to bring revival. And thirdly, revival realizes God's glory. Verse 8 is the key verse to this entire psalm, by the way. If you read it, it says, Let me hear what the God Yahweh will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his holy ones, but let them not turn back to folly. Realize this this passage, this verse, is really telling us about Scripture. The Lord speaks through his Scripture, through his word. Psalmist is basically saying here, let me hear some good preaching. Let me hear some good teaching. Let me hear the word of God speak. Let me hear him speak to me. You know today, the most surefire, most reliable way to know God's speaking to you? Open your Bible. It's that easy. Read it. Study it. Learn it. Hear what he has to say. But look again. Look at what the psalmist says. Let me hear what the God Yahweh will speak for his for he will speak peace to his people, to his holy ones. The word peace is shalom. You hear it on TV all the time when two people who are supposed to be Jewish on the show are talking to each other. It's, it's peace in Hebrew, but there's more to it than just peace. It's peace and prosperity. He gives prosperity to his people. You understand the peace and the prosperity of God is more than just some dollar bills or a quiet afternoon at home. Peter tells us in Acts 10.36, God preaches the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace for a reason. Because he secures us in peace. He brings peace to our minds, peace to our souls. That is worth far more than any winning lottery ticket, by the way. That's true priest. Uh, true, true peace. Wow, words got hard all of a sudden. True peace. Who receives this peace? Who receives his peace? It's his, it's his holy ones. Sometimes that gets translated as saints. Saints is not a word we typically associate with the Old Testament, is it? We think of New Testament saints. Saint Paul, Saint Peter, and so on. But it's used in the Old Testament. Only once in Second Chronicles, once in Proverbs, 12 different times in the book of Psalms, and seven times in one other book, the book of Daniel. The saints in Daniel, Daniel seven eighteen, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And that sounds better than any earthly prosperity we could ever hope for. But in Daniel, the saints do one of two things. They either rejoice in the rewards of God or they rejoice in the suffering of God. It's the same way in the Psalms. Most of the time they're rejoicing, they're shouting for joy. Psalm 132, 16, 145, 10, 34, 9. But there are other Psalms that tell us and they allude to the fact that the saints must suffer. Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his holy ones. That doesn't sound like any prosperity I've ever heard on TBN. Doesn't sound too safe, does it? The word saints or holy ones, the Hebrew word is el kasedeo. And it means the godly ones. It speaks of the, the righteous, faithful person who, 
who has a true love for God. And if you notice, inside that word is the word chesed. That's the steadfast, loving kindness of God Almighty. These are people who are lovers of God. No matter what he throws at them, no matter what he brings into their life, they're like Job who said, though he slay me, still I will hope in him. That's their love for God. Whatever he throws at me, I'm still going to love him. I'm still going to serve him. I'm still going to find my, my hope in him. Such a person would want to seek him. In fact, that's what Job says he's going to do, right? He, he says it all throughout. I'm, when I talk to God, I'm going to have this question. I'm going to say this. Such a person would want God's word and want to understand him as he speaks to us. But you know, the truth is we're still human. And the psalmist says, but let us not turn back to folly. The CSB translation says, do not let them go back to foolish ways. And this word, you know, you, you read through Proverbs, you read through other, the wisdom literature of the Bible, and you'll see the word folly on almost every other page. But the truth is, this Hebrew word only appears one other time in all the Bible. This word for folly. Remember I said, uh, was it last week, that sometimes depending on the context, a Hebrew word can completely change its meaning, but there's still a reason for that. There's still something to, to look at there. In Job chapter 4, this word folly often will also get translated as confidence. What the psalmist is telling us is, don't let us return back to the foolish things we did that we were confident in when we did them. We thought we were doing the right thing. The things that we'd cling to. The things that, man, I would go back to that if I could. That was such a good experience. And Church, I'll tell you, the past is where revival goes to die. The past is a great place to visit, but when we start to live there, revival begins to slip through our fingers. When we repeat the same foolish mistakes that took us to the point of death, hope of revival fades. That's where the light of life in a church begins to go out. When we revel in the glory of the past, we miss out on God's glory now. But if we focus on his glory, if we pursue that rather than the past, look what happens, verses 9 and 11. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs up from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. His salvation is near those who fear him, who's forsaking their sin, who trust in him. And it's then he's truly faithful to bring salvation in his kingdom. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. You know, we, we don't like that either, do we? I don't want to fear God. I want to think of him as my buddy and my friend. People get the fear of the Lord wrong. We think it means to be terrified of him, to worry about him, to be completely petrified. And you know what? If you're not in Christ, you should be. Absolutely should be. Because you're under wrath, you're not under the cross. But when we've received his grace, when we've beheld his glory, when we've understood his goodness and know that he's just and he's holy and we want to just worship him in spirit and truth and we understand we fear him because we respect what he's capable of. We know what we deserve. 
And we know that he alone is the God who saves. And we want truly his glory in our lives. The psalmist understands this. The sons of Korah who wrote this, they got it. Because God's glory had departed from Israel. His presence had had gone away because of their sin and the apostasy of the people. They'd become so corrupted. But remember, the people are back in the land now. And they want the glory of God to come back. But it won't. It won't return until God himself walks among them in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. Who took on the form of man. It's in Christ we see verses 10 and 11 fulfilled. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other as Christ is lifted up, hoisted up upon the cross. Righteousness looks down from heaven. You bet it did. The wrath of God falls upon him on whom our sins were cast. And it's there Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's then and only then righteousness and peace truly meet as the two beams of the cross are connected. And our Lord who knew no sin took it upon himself and he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's paid in full. The debt was paid. The payment for your sin, for my sin, for our sin, for all those who call upon the name of Christ and receive his free gift of grace. It's not because of our goodness, but because of his. When we repent and we believe, he's faithful and he's good and he's glorious. And we get to verse 12 and 13. Indeed, Yahweh will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. Righteousness will go before him and will establish the way of his steps. You understand it's in his true goodness and in his glory we receive his increase. Increase of faith, increase of love, increase of peace, of hope, gentleness, understanding, self-control, joy. Zechariah tells us that in the coming kingdom of Christ, there will be peace for the seed and the vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce and heaven, the heavens will give their due. And I'll cause the remnant of the people to inherit all these things. But you understand God doesn't want to just give us good things, a good gift, and then leave us behind He doesn't revive us only so that we can die again and again, but that we'll pursue him and be consistently chasing after him. Righteousness will go before him and establish the way of his steps. He's talking about Christ. That his righteousness is now going before us and plowing the path that we continue down the narrow road, that we we never leave it. That's why we pray, lead us not into temptation. Because he's leading us down the path of righteousness. And there will be times we may get off track, sure. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be times where we're going to fall, where we're going to fail. But the truth is, if we only repent and we cry out to him, he's faithful to breathe new life into us and revive us. Church, when we seek Christ faithfully, he's faithful to bring revival. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. But as we close this morning, we have to ask hard questions about this, don't we? We should. If we're responsible with with the word, we should. And the first question we have to answer is, am I seeking him faithfully? Or am I seeking something else? Do I want something else? Do I want an experience or do I want a consistent life in Christ? Which one is more important? 
We have to recognize that. Church, we have to ask, do we, do we truly want revival in our town, in our church, in our surrounding communities? We have to answer that. Do we want it? Not that person over there, not that church down the street, not a church in another state. Do we want it? And maybe the better question is, do we really need reviving? Because if we're a church that's standing on the word, growing in the word, sharing the word, living the word, defending the word, maybe we don't need revival because we've been revived. But in our own individual lives, we have to stop. We have to ask, am I growing? Am I learning? Am I pushing myself or am I complacent and average and happy to be there and dead? Because the truth is, we're either revived or we're needing revived. Amen? I heard a kid say amen. That's good. And you know, the truth is, all these questions, I can't answer them for us. It's not up to the pastor to answer that question. It's truly up to the church. And not to answer it in word, but in action. So today, if you will, if you want... Maybe you, you feel like you need revival in your life, then I would challenge you, find a place as we close in song, as we close in prayer, and find a place to pray. If you want revival in our nation, in our town, in our, maybe in your own home or even in the church, you think we need that, find a place to pray as we close. Pray alone, pray with someone, but, but pray. You know, this entire psalm is a prayer. Revival begins with God. I believe he's faithful to bring that if his people are faithful to pray, to seek him. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and lead us in one more song, but as they do, I would challenge you once more, find a place, get alone with God. Ask yourself the hard questions. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of the answer because he's faithful to deliver on his promises. feel so spiritually dead don't just rush out the door today make time for prayer make time for Christ seek him this morning because he's faithful to revive us maybe you're doing okay that's, that's, it's okay to be okay by the way it's okay to be living in a state of revival that's that's fine too but if that's you and you you see someone praying maybe the spirit's leading you go pray for someone and go pray for them we're going to dismiss in prayer but like i said don't be so quick to rush out this morning pizza ranch will still be open by the time you get there i promise or ice cream ice cream whatever you're doing for lunch lord we just we need revival, Father God. Because we do want an outpouring. We do want to see people saved. We want to see people come to know you. But the church needs reviving if it's to be healthy enough to carry out the work of an outpouring, what it demands and what it insists upon its people. 
And Father, if there are those here today and they're saying, you know what, that is me, I need revived. Lord, we know you're faithful to your word. And we stand upon what you said, that you'll bring it. You'll turn us back and you'll turn to us and you'll revive your people. Father, we worship you today. Breathe life into those who need it. Even in myself, Lord God, I pray you. We breathe fresh air today, Father. We ask this in the name of your Son. God, you're faithful. One of the questions we got to ask is why not here? Why not see an outpouring here? Because if we're revived, we will believe that. Father, we thank you. Amen.